Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones their hearts and understand that I will love them. I will love them while I still can. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Alzheimer's Speaks radio show. I'm glad you could be with us today. My name is Lori LeBay, and I'm the founder of the radio show and the International Resource website and and several other initiatives. I have a passion uh, to shift our dementia care culture around the world, and I'm thrilled that you also want to be a part of that. Here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we believe in giving voice to those afflicted with memory loss and their care partners, empowering everyone to live purpose-filled lives. Our goal is to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real, everyday life stories of living with dementia. And we hope to teach people how to live with the disease, not as the disease. Our channel expert who has early-onset dementia is Rick Phelps, and I'm not sure if he's going to be able to make the show today or not. If so, I will definitely pull Rick uh, Phelps into the show. For those of you not familiar with Rick, Rick was diagnosed in June of 2010, and he is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a wonderful closed support group um, for those with early memory loss as well as their care partners, both family and professional and advocates. And if you haven't checked it out, uh, when you're in Facebook, just put in the search bar memory people and ask to join. It's a a wonderful group. I think there's over like 2,100 people around the world. So if you can't sleep in the middle of the night, chances are you're going to be able to have a conversation with somebody on the site. And again, it is a closed site, so conversations are private to the group. Um, Here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we are all about being collaborative as we shift caregiving from crisis to comfort by sharing our knowledge, our insights, our passions, and we encourage you as our listeners to participate as well. And you can do that by utilizing the chat box. Um, Just go ahead and sign in on the web um, using Facebook, and then we can chat via the the chat box. Or you can always call in live to the show at 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. 714-364-4757. And you'll just have to push one to go ahead and get into my queue today. We've got a wonderful show for you. Um, we're going to be talking about memory maps, and we're also going to uh, have a doctor on with us for the second half. So, again, if you've got questions with either, uh, please feel free to participate in the show. Our first guest is Caitlin Johnston. And she is the CEO and founder of Memory Mats. And with more than six years of experience in long-term care, and she has done intensive training that gives her the experience uh, to understand the needs 
of the industry in a whole new light. She's an advocate, an innovator, and a speaker for Alzheimer's disease and has developed various successful projects that have been implemented among many organizations. Uh, Caitlin believes that the healthcare system needs to have a more innovative uh, products for seniors as well as an accessible network uh, for its community. Memory Math is endorsed by Alzheimer's Disease International, and Caitlin works hand-in-hand with their organization to create a better future for those afflicted with the disease. And I do want to mention that September 21st is World Alzheimer's Day. And so, again, thank you so much for joining us today, Caitlin. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. I'm thrilled to have you here. I'm down in Minnesota, and you're up in Canada. And, again, our listeners are all around the world. So well, I'm really interested to have you share um, with our listenership what what is Memory Mats. Can you explain what the product is and how you developed it? Yeah. So um, Memory Mats is basically um, a very uh, simple concept that takes people's life stories, and what we do is collect photos and words of their past or present, and basically it's submitted to us, and we graphically design a mat that um, works as a brain fitness tool because it provides them a memory recall throughout reminiscing. Um, Memory Mat started in April 2011, and I just saw a need for... um, for those affected by the disease, that they needed to have around them the memories of their past and, and keep up their spirits and keep up their thoughts and their thinking and their connections of the neurons in the brain. And and a lot of homes were lacking that, um, and I think there's a, a, a general need for it. And we all know that not all caregivers can be there all the time to have these conversations with with them. Definitely. Now, one of the things that I like is that it sounds like people send the photos to you and then you create the mat. Is that correct? Um, That is how memory mats definitely did start out. And right now our website is under construction. It should be running in about one week because we've developed an online software that is very easy for for anyone to go in now um, and create a mat. And you can see it before it's sent to the printer and then we send it to you. So it's very interactive now, and um, we we definitely uh, are really looking forward to this this new way of creating memory maps for the general public. Oh, exciting! Now, yes. if if somebody um, wants to create a memory map, are there certain size pictures that they have to have, or will will this system kind of size and fit where you can kind of maneuver things around? Or yeah, so the the software is like a um, it's, it's very easy. Um, the pictures can be sized down by the software itself. When you go in, it's clipped. You can stretch the photos. It's very, very, um, very easy one, two, three step. And um, it, it's it's all around easy to use for people who aren't really tech savvy as well. So we've made it really, really um Easy for the caregivers, easy even for some some seniors, those affected by the disease. People could do it together. Um, so all in all, we're looking looking forward to this. Wonderful. Well, I like that it's it. You know, you don't have to be high tech to use it <laughs> because yeah. um, a lot of people think I'm I'm uh, 
technically uh, savvy, and I, I still think I'm a little technically challenged on a lot of <laughs> levels, you know, because it's constantly twisting and changing, and and everybody, uh, you know, everybody uses different software and and things, so that's nice to see. Now, are there certain sizes that the mats come in, or? Yeah, the mat is just it's it's one general size, about the size of a um, a place mat, if you will. And um, we we are looking in the future to build and branch and maybe go to different sizes if if there are requests. But we find one that generally fits about ten photos comfortably, and you can have less or or even more if you really wanted to. Okay, well that'd be kind of even neat just to have around the table, you know. Yeah. For for families in general, so I can see that this could have a lot of fun uses um, for for people not just necessarily dementia related, but even kids growing up every year making a mat for them. Most, that, what a, that would just be a, a hoot as you get older. Yes, um, most definitely. And being able to create things with that. Are you targeting specifically um, dementia at this point, or are you are you going after a larger target than that? Um, at this point, uh, my general target is dementia just because it is my passion. Um, but we have been asked to do a few other things for people, and I've held off so thus far. Um, but I do look to, in the future, the next wave, um, to be with, with brain injury patients, because um, there is a link there as well with the memory. And then down the road for children um, as well that just would like to have the family photos around, the family wants to have the childhood photos around as well. Oh, very neat. Can I ask um, for for pricing, is there two different types of pricing, one if you arrange it and one if they do it, or is it all going to be online now where everyone kind of designs their own at this point? Yeah, so I have switched it, so it's all online, so everyone designs their own at this point and to their liking, and they can see the print preview. Um, so it's $19.99 per mat, and 10% of all um, proceeds go back to Alzheimer's Disease International. Wow, that's great. Now, yeah. when when it goes back to Alzheimer's Disease International, and maybe you know this and maybe you don't, do you know how that is divvied up amongst all their organizations, or does it kind of go into the, the grand fund of things? I'm pretty sure it goes into the grand fund of the research to help find find the cure for their researching labs. But um, when I when I do, after I do return from England, um, I will post on my website exactly where those funds are going. Okay, great. I think it's important for everyone to know that. Well, in Alzheimer's disease, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, it's a great organization. Um, its uh, main office is over in London, and they are an organization of um, Alzheimer's organizations. And so you and I can't be a member because it's for the Alzheimer's, you know, associations and and um, societies and things like that. So it's it's a pretty cool organization, and they're doing um, they're doing a lot um, to really shift our dementia care culture. They also have some fabulous um, conferences um, throughout the year, and I know that you're going to speak at one of them, um, I believe, on uh, September 21st. Am I correct on that, Caitlin? Yes. Um, yeah, on September 21st, they do have a panel on, on World Alzheimer's Day, so it, it's going to be interesting, and I'm um, looking forward to see what unfolds there. Um, as well, they are having a conference in April, 
uh, in Taiwan, mm-hmm. and that's their their world conference, and I will be there speaking as well. Oh, very neat. Yeah. That's exciting. That's exciting. The place I've always wanted to uh, to be was to really get on that that platform um, with them. So maybe someday I'll I'll see you there as well, um, as I do a lot of speaking and training and and different variables. But I'm very excited for you and what it is you're you know you're bringing to the mat um, for dementia. Have you personally been touched um, by a family or a friend with dementia at all? Well, it's 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 um, I'm glad you've asked that. I've been asked that numerous times, and and personally, um, to be very close, I have not through family. Although my mom's father did pass away from the disease, uh, he did live far away in British Columbia, so I only met him a few times. But um, I just got into the workforce with it, and just really took a passion to it, and I just believe it's it's my life path to help those affected by the disease. And I believe it's because um, I don't like seeing someone build their whole life for, for them to get stripped of it because they can't remember. That's one of the scariest things to face, and we all need support and help in keeping those memories alive. Well, that's wonderful. And, you know, you, it, it doesn't have to hit home. For most of us, it does. And... You know, I was mm-hmm. just having this conversation the other day, and, and people were just talking that, you know, once once this penetrates you, I mean, there's no going back. You know, it's, it's a life-changing event, not just for the person with dementia, um, but for everybody who's involved with it. It's, um, it, you know, it's pretty staggering, you know, the numbers and the statistics and all of that. But, you know, once it hits home um, and, and kind of opens opens your soul, um, there's just this kind of passion to, to make things better for the next guy. There's got to be an easier way for the next person, and I can see that that you definitely have a passion um, mm-hmm. to do that yourself, which is absolutely wonderful. Do you have, um, why don't you give the uh, the URL or your contact information on how people would get a hold of you um, okay. to get the, the memory maps? Okay, so our online store website uh, is www.memorymats.ca. Right now it's uh, under construction just for one more week. As I said, we're just making sure that software is up to date and really, really correct and simple for everyone to use. Um, But for now, you can um, contact me at my email, which is memorymats1 at gmail.com or by telephone at... 647-309-2742. 647-309-2742. Great. And um, Caitlin, do you have, you know, are you are you um, contemplating other projects? I know that um, in your bio that you had submitted uh, me, you had talked about, you know, doing some some other projects as well. And I'm wondering if you've got any any others that you're thinking of doing on a commercial level, or if you'd be willing to share with us some of your other um, projects that you've done in order to, you know, increase engagement with someone with dementia? Um, right now I do have other things on the slide, um, but I have put them on hold just to focus strictly on memory mats just because of the growth in the last uh, year has been immense. Um, but one of, my, one of my side projects right now um, is not directly a product, 
It's actually called the Purple Elephant Campaign. Mm -hmm. And what the Purple Elephant Campaign is, is um, I'm starting it here in Toronto, and it's um, it's events that take place in new innovative ways to help bring out the disease within the community because a lot of people that aren't affected by it actually don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's bringing, bringing new events to communities, to bigger cities, in a way that the general public can come, attend, um, and understand about the disease and learn how to live healthy and also how to help caregivers in understanding that we do need help. This is a community, and it's growing at a rapid pace. Well, that sounds, I, you know, I like the title, you know, because it just sounds fun, and it sounds mm-hmm. interesting. So yes. um, I think that that's very cool. Um, it sounds like it could kind of almost be on the order in some fashion of what they're doing over in the U.K. with dementia-friendly communities and businesses mm-hmm. in terms of raising awareness. And I know I'm rolling that out um in fact, on the 20th this month, I'm going to do my, my first conference on uh, dementia-friendly businesses and um, because I just think it's a fabulous idea where we, uh, you know, like we said earlier, this is not a disease of one. This is one where we have to join together um, and, um, and really shift kind of the energy and the services so that people understand the disease and are able to remove stigmas. And I think we have to do that in a real-life fashion, one that's not just jammed full of statistics and, um, you know, slides of the brain, but but really talking about how do you live with the disease, how do you continue to have a, um, you know, purposeful, engaged life with those that you've always loved. And um, I I think that, uh, you know, what you're doing there with the Purple Elephant events will be great. So that's great. uh, anything else that you're working on that you'd like to share? Or? Um, there, there's a few side projects, but they're, uh, I guess, soon to come, soon to see. But um, everything that I do will be, will be, I guess, promoted through through Memory Mats and the Purple Elephant campaign behind it. Mm-hmm. So anything that you see to come soon is uh, through those names is is from me, and I'm very excited to. You help out in uh, any way I can with the disease because um, it is my passion and I'm really, really happy to uh, be able to work full-time and do this on my own now. Um, it's a great feeling. Oh, that's that's very exciting. Do you have um, kind of statistics of, of where your client base is or have you found that it really is international, that you're kind of breaking down barriers in that fashion? Yeah, it's um, it's... Definitely international, definitely all over the globe, and um, it's really good to see that there is there is um, interest all over, and it's not just uh, in North America. And, and I'm really excited to branch and break out through to Europe, um, mainly because I've always followed them and uh, their leads on dementia care. And um, yeah, I'm just really excited to to go international. Yeah, they, uh, you know, they they don't think they're so far ahead, but they really are. Yeah. (laughs) Ahead of the the rest of us. I got an email from somebody today going, well, you know, we're just trying to get this pulled together and we've got a long ways to go. And I'm I'm just, you know, chuckling to myself thinking, oh, my gosh, you guys are, are so much further ahead than what I feel we are here in the U.S. And we're making we're making strides. Don't get me wrong. 
Yeah. Um, but again, it's just that collaborative spirit and the the funding needs that that they've committed to um, are huge. And you know, one of the things that I like about your project is, as much as I love research, um, re, you know, we need tools today. Um, mm-hmm. People can't wait for a pill, you know, to no. fix this thing. They have to know how to live with the disease. They have to know how to engage. They have to be able to find some kind of peace and serenity within this new role, um, be them a person who has the disease or someone caring for them. And, you know, we just we have to start speaking the same language. And, and I don't know if you see that in Canada, but here in the U.S., um, I see us really as being siloed. And, again, it, it's changing um and it's changing you know faster than it used to be so that's a that's a good sign but i think we have to really get into speaking kind of the people's language instead of all the technical language yeah. um and we have to you know provide services that are based on relationships not just tasks and um really move forward with that and i agree so now in Canada, is it the Alzheimer's Society that's kind of your main? Yeah, yeah. Alzheimer's Society is definitely our our main. Okay, okay. Well, and they're you know they're doing some cool things. I, I think one of the things that um, amazed me because I've been dealing with this for thirty years with my mom, and mm-hmm. when it started, a I didn't even know what Alzheimer's was, um, yep. let alone dementia. And two, I had no idea um, where where to go for help. And we know was finally told here in America the Alzheimer's Association, but have been surprised over the years the numbers of organizations throughout the world that are dealing with providing services for Alzheimer's, for dementia, for caregiving as a whole. That you know, I didn't, I didn't know even existed. Um, yeah. No one really had those those resources out there. So one of the things that um, I just launched here, and we're in a soft launch, is the the new website Alzheimer's Speaks, which has a international, I call it an international collaborative resource um, site for dementia. And we're in the process of building that out. But part of it is, you know, I, I'm a one man show. Um, here, so I want people to participate and submit information that they have. If it's a good book they've read, if it's an article, if it's a service, if it's a video, we're trying to track the memory cafes um, around the world. And so there's a lot of things that people can submit for free on the site and share expertise because there's so many things that are like little hidden um you know, little hidden crevasses all over the place. And until mm-hmm. we start talking about things like your memory mats, like your purple elephant events, yeah. um, it's going to be so hard to find them. And so I wanted to create an environment where people could openly share um, their resources, um, writings, you know, if they're, if they're into personal, uh, sharing personal stories or poetry like Norms McNamara, um, or if it's just a good article, and then also for businesses to be able to be listed if it's you know home health care or if it's where do I go to find out information on trials, um, anything along that line. So we've got a 
pretty extensive list for the for the resource directory. And again, would love would love our listeners um, around the world to participate in that because I haven't seen where there's a spot for people to be able to go that's easy to mine um, the information that we need. I always went to Google, and I don't know if that's what you do too. <laughs> yeah. When I'm yeah. looking for things, and and Google's. You know, Google's a pretty big bear out there, and it's a wonderful resource, but it's one where I can't go back and figure out where I was. <laughs> yeah. And as a caregiver, I would get a little a little bit frustrated with that um, in turn. Now, I want to get back to the um, Alzheimer's Disease International on the 21st. You said you're going to be part of a panel. And do you know who else is going to be on the panel for you and what exactly you're talking about? I'd love to be able to have you give a little plug for that. Um, we're just basically discussing the, I guess, new ways um, to roll out um, the disease in making general awareness for mm-hmm. internationally around the world. Um, Alzheimer's uh, Disease International is developing a new, I guess you would say, kind of campaign um, media blast that's going to be coming out uh, for the new year and um, just to get the whole world involved in understanding that we do need to focus on this disease and it's time. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of like how a breast cancer has the pink ribbon, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's Disease International is developing one logo and um, kind of like one little package that everyone who's involved with the disease can have and hand out and spread awareness where they are so we can all reach across globally. Oh, that's great. It's, I think yeah. it would be wonderful to get all the organizations working together for a, you know, for a greater cause because um, sometimes I think, you know, every business or organization thinks they're the only ones out there, you know, and everyone's mm-hmm. kind of fighting for their piece of the pie. And, yeah. And this disease just says, hey, you know, you got to play nice in the playground and all of your information is good that everybody has and, and we've got to share it, especially in the economical times. It's, uh, you know, it's much easier to, uh, I think, share information and we can spread the word of what's working and the resources faster um, when we stop trying to recreate a wheel that someone else has already developed. And instead we support what it is they're doing, we raise that voice, and then we can move on to other things that need to be created and developed and and services um, that are out there. I'd like to encourage our listeners, if you've got any questions or comments, to please utilize your chat box, or we'd love to have you call in. And again, that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757 with that. So um, I was going to ask... Caitlin, another question for you: Do you do you typically do a lot of um, speaking at all when you're, you know, up in Canada, or are you really focused more on your product and product delivery at this point? Um, I was mainly focused on the product at first, mm-hmm. um, but now in uh, starting the Purple Elephant campaign, I did have in my mind for a while. And I do feel like um, now is the time to start it. So the first event is October 11th, 
And that's how I'm going to get across to my city of speaking about um, the disease and getting all the different industries um, within our society understanding and learning about it and hopefully having them have a Purple Elephant campaign sticker in their store window so that everyone knows they're a supporter of the disease. I'm trying to definitely speak and come across more through that way and the Purple Elephant campaign is, is the way that I'm bridging across to everyone here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so for for now, I kind of have my hands full between the Purple Elephant campaign and Memory Match, mm-hmm. um, balancing out both. Uh, but I definitely um, have the two speakings with ADI coming up. And in the future, most definitely, um, I do enjoy speaking and educating those and and helping them to understand the disease because, as I said, it is my passion, and I truly believe everyone needs to come together because uh, this is this is really big. Well, great. We've got a caller on the line, so I'm going to go ahead and pull them in. Uh, caller, you are a 203 number. If you can uh, state your name and welcome to the show. Hi, this is Isabel. Thank you for taking my call. Well, I'm relative newcomer to the field compared to you ladies, and um, so it's really an honor to, to chat with you. I just have a, a question and a comment. Um, presently, I'm reading a book. You've probably heard of her, Judith London. It's called Connecting the Dots. It's about breakthroughs in communication as Alzheimer's advances. And um, I guess one of the main uh, concepts I've got from her book, oh, by the way, I've worked with the elderly for several years, but it's only in the past year and a half I've worked specifically with the memory impaired, so that's my background, and I work in recreation. And um, But one of the things she says in the book that I'm finding extremely helpful and something I can use right away in the work, and, and again, it's something I think we all know on an unconscious level, but she kind of brings it to the surface, and um she calls it uh, emotional memory, and again, you mm-hmm. guys probably know all this, but I'll just say because it it's new to me, um, emotional memory is on an unconscious level so that if, for instance, uh, somebody doesn't, uh, a resident, for instance, maybe has seen me a hundred times, and on the hundred and first time, they still don't remember necessarily who I am specifically, but on an emotional level, they remember me, you know, whether they had a, a positive or a negative connection. And so that's why they respond more to one person than to another. So, I mean, of course, you know, hopefully you'd want to be compassionate either way, but that kind of would give somebody even more of an incentive to create a positive memory. And the other thing uh, she said, again, I know I'm repeating stuff for you guys who are experts, but... Oh, no, um, this is wonderful. Don't don't apologize at all. It's always nice to hear oh, things thank you. a different voice and a different angle. Um, right, because we right. All click at different times, so no, at this different is wonderful. Times. And the other thing she says is that uh, you know we we focus so much on what the person can no longer do, they can no longer do this, you know, and it's progressive. So you know now they can't do this, and and she says even if some in people who have Alzheimer's, they're still creating new brain cells all the time, and she says we need to stop thinking about the negative and focus on the positive. Of course, she says research is good, but the, the problem is that it, it it creates such a negative slant and always focusing on what the person's losing rather than addressing the fact that, you know what, this person got up today. They smiled. Mm-hmm. Maybe they can still feed themselves. You know, whatever, however that 
small that might seem, let's embrace that and celebrate that, and then you kind of call that forth out of them. But, but that thing about emotional memory, I just can't even begin to tell you in the, just the very short time that I've been using it, I'm making a connection. I see the residents responding to it because I'm very aware that I'm creating a memory. Um, and then it's like the next time I see them, they not always, but generally I'm getting a really positive response from them. And I'm thinking, I know they don't remember me, but yet they're acting like I'm a long lost friend, you know. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's wonderful to see smiles on people who seemed, you know, previously somewhat comatose. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I, that's I, about all I have to say, but I just want those were my comments. And the other thing is we... Uh, I'm, I'm, I kind of have a question and looking for advice. Sometimes you get new people, or and I, I love what the lady was saying about the memory mats. And I know people are in marketing, and there's a, you know higher ups who can deal with all this stuff. But in general, without talking about products per se, but uh, like we have new people coming in, and you know they're looking for the door. I want to go home, mm-hmm. and there's not really a memory mat even in. The, a casual sense there's just maybe if they're lucky a few photos in their room and that's it you know yeah and i'm thinking maybe that's something we could look into well i think that's a really good point and um caitlin do you want to add anything um most definitely i do understand and i have uh, worked in in long-term care in the homes and in those those first months even to three months when they they are looking to go home it's it is right. redirecting them and um, mm-hmm. and letting them know of different different things and having your even if you don't have enough staff, your volunteers speak with those residents and 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 calming them down and figuring out how to create a new neural path in their brain to make them feel comfortable, which I do understand can be hard. But there's things to think outside the box, like those doors, like you're saying, they're looking to exit. You can get bring someone in and have them paint a nice scenery on the door, so they don't notice that that's a door to leave. Oh, um, that's a great idea. Yeah, there's there's new ways and new things, and that's why I do believe mm-hmm. we need to network better and come together to right. put so many ideas out there that we can benefit off of. Yeah, the the other thing I want to add is, um, you know, you were talking, and I have not read the book Connecting the Dots by by Judith London. I would love to have her actually on the show. So if you oh, that'd be if awesome. you know of her, um, let her know. I'd love to love to have, pull her in, and we'd love to have her book also on the resource website because, again, it's it's all about sharing the knowledge. But I think what's so important with the whole emotional memory. Um, as a couple of factors, and one is that, and a lot of people don't even know this, they know that we have, um, you know, kind of our regular IQ intelligence, and everyone kind of bases, that's who we are, and and that's all we'll ever be, and that's as smart as we'll, we'll ever be in our lives. But there's a thing called emotional intelligence, and if you Google right. it, um, there's some great video on YouTube about emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is about connecting the dots. And it it is mm-hmm. something that does not stop and is something that can be learned throughout life. And mm-hmm. the important factor, I think, with this is mm-hmm. not only for the person with memory loss, but mm-hmm. for us as caregivers. Oh, absolutely. I use, I use what I call emotional-based training um, mm-hmm. When I when I teach staff and families, when I go out and lecture, 
I want to get them to feel the need to make the change um, because I don't think is is um, analytical as we can all be about going, yeah, the numbers are high and I should do this different and blah, 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 until it pulls at our heartstrings and there's a reason that we really feel deep in our soul to make a change, we don't make a change. Right. And so I, I think this emotional memory um, can be used, again, not just with the person for dementia, but to help us as care partners to do the right thing, to dig a little bit deeper um, and not just be so task-oriented. And, and it kind of ties in, too, to my um, your memory chip tool, that I have on the website that's a, a free tool where it gets people to shift from that task perspective mm-hmm. to one of of true ultimate um, patient-centered care or person-centered care where we stop checking off all the little tasks we have to do and we stop and say, okay, we ask ourselves three things. Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? Because that mm-hmm. comes before the task. Mm-hmm. And that's good. it allows us... And it allows us to let go of that need for control to fix things, to improve things, because we can't always um, with this disease. We can't fix it by a task, but Mm -hmm. we can um, embrace it, and we can make it so much more comfortable when we engage on an emotional level and really focus on building a relationship with that person. It just takes a whole different turn, and then other things aren't aren't that important anymore because we're back to the core of our relationships, which I think is just a critical critical piece for all of us. So I really thank you for calling in. Um, well, thank you for Isabel. taking my call. It's a great no, show. I was, just found it today, so I'll definitely be calling again. <laughs> thank you well, so good. much. Yeah, and, and share it with people. All of our shows are archived. And you can right. email them, you can tweet, you can Facebook them, because, um, again, we're just right. kind of a little grassroots thing, but it's all about giving voice to everybody, um, evening out the playing fields, because everybody's voice is important to be heard with this disease, because we all see things in a different light. And like Caitlin was talking earlier, it's about sharing those ideas. Right. Uh, if I may say one able- more thing. Sure. I saw uh, Judith London. I also kind of looked up some of her. Uh, she's got some stuff on YouTube, some interviews with her. And um, and this concept of connecting the dots is kind of like, you know, when sometimes it seems like they're just giving a person with Alzheimer's or dementia, like they're just talking nonsense. Mm-hmm. And to, to that person, it, it makes sense on some level. And you may not know 100%, but, the, you know, ideally you, you want to kind of, like she said, for instance, she went into a facility, and I guess they all went into the dining room, and one person wouldn't settle down, just kept saying she wanted to go to the second floor to the second floor. Well, you know, the building had no second floor, but, mm-hmm. and, and and you know, as sometimes happens, um, and I'm sure in many facilities, when you, people don't know what to do, the care, care, caregivers kind of scatter, you know, because you just can't get the person to settle down. They don't know what to do, so they kind of do nothing and will gear towards the other residents. And so this, per- because she said she was there as the so-called expert, she felt compelled to do something. You know, she's kind of funny, uh-huh. but she said she went over to the woman and went, I want to go upstairs, I want to go. She said, well, finally she said to the woman, she said, well, what 
exactly is it that you're looking for? And the woman, she said, she'll never forget it. And she said, the woman said, I'm looking for my old friends and I'm looking for myself. Mm-hmm. And then Powerful. from there they were, yeah, and from there they were able to go on and have a conversation. Yeah. So that's our, her our, point about connecting. Oh, it's, that's very powerful. And um, we're having uh, Dr. Uh, Todd Stevlin on for as our second guest, and I know okay. he has some definite opinions on what they're looking for when they want to go home. Oh, and I'll have my to belief, listen. You know, my belief is is that they're looking for comfort, and they're out yeah. of their comfort zone, whatever. Right. And so it is. It's about asking those questions and trying to be able to pull in what actually is is happening in their world. I'm a firm believer that a person with dementia also uses the exact same equation that we do to process. They just connect the dots different. And that equation is what's their current attitude plus their past experiences Mm -hmm. equal their perception. And their perception then causes their reaction. And when we don't like their reaction, then we Mm -hmm. label it a behavior. Um, well, you know, can... uh, I know you mm-hmm. want want me to get off the line. If I can say one more thing, thirty seconds, then I promise I'll hang up. But you know, okay. it seems to me a, a lot. The bottom line seems to me, and I could be wrong, but you know, part of it is, you know, the passion and the compassion, and the other part is the education. And uh, like for me, I, I I am a very compassionate person, but getting reading these books and starting to get insights, you know, is all the compassion in the world couldn't give me that kind of insight. So they kind of work mm-hmm. together. And what I'm seeing is that um, you know people such as you and others, you know, have all these compassions and the insights and the education. But the people on the front lines, you know, the RCAs, the CNAs. They're the ones who probably spend the majority of the time, and my concern is that they're not getting these insights. Yeah, and and there's there's a lot of training that's going on. I just uh, did a, a, a webinar series called "Shifting Your Dementia Care Culture" with uh, Wisconsin mm-hmm. Leading Age, and it was actually uh, 14 modules. One that we did to staff, and then I did an evening one for family and. Um, the general public trying to get everybody on the same page. So there's a shift out there, and Beautiful. it's about pulling everyone together because those direct line staff are probably the most powerful and most influential, yes. um, but they're yes. not well, always given the credit. So exactly. Thank you, thank you so for, much. Well, thank and you. And thank and you I've for listening. Another, another caller on the line. So, okay. um, but bye thanks bye. for joining us, and I look forward to you uh, being with us again, Isabel. Bye now. Thank you. Thank you so kindly. Thank you both. Bye-bye now. I've got another caller on the line from a 201, if you wouldn't mind saying your name and introducing yourself. A 201, welcome to the show. Your name and introducing yourself. A 201. Hi. Hello. 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 How are you doing? Good. My name is Michelle DeSocio. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing today? How are you? Good, good. Well, I'm glad you're uh, you're calling in. Did you have a question or comment that you wanted to make? Yeah, I did about what uh, Isabel was touching on, and I don't know if Isabel is a member of Memory People or not, but one thing that I really learned from Memory People is to live in my mom's world, and that has made a big difference in our relationship. 
Yep. And that's a good point, Michelle. And for listeners, if you have not checked out Memory People, it's a closed group on Facebook, a social support group. And, Michelle, I can't tell you how many people I hear with stories like you that say, this group has changed my life because it's just made me look at this disease differently. And I'm talking with people who are in the trenches who get it, not a doctor, not a psychologist, not somebody who is just a general know-it-all you know, on, on everything that comes up, but people who have lived this and feel the compassion um, for the disease, feel the frustration, feel the loss of relationship and wanting to be able to engage and, and improve our dementia care culture. So I think it's uh, it's great that you called in to mention that again. I don't think people can hear uh, enough about resources and where they can go uh, to find find out more information. How long have you been part of Memory People? Well, I'm only a member about four months, but my mom has had uh, Alzheimer's for 13 years, and I was our caretaker for almost seven. She's now in a nursing home, and in the last four months, my relationship has changed with my mother by leaps and bounds from what I've learned on Memory People. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. You've been in it for a long haul. You know, I've been in it for almost 30 years with my mom. She's been in the nursing home 11 and in her end stages 4. But, um, I, you know, I still feel very connected to her, um, even though the way we have to communicate is different. Um, she's still a huge, huge piece of my life and, and will always be, um, no matter what no matter what comes, you know, in the future for us. So, um, well, I thank you for calling in. Any other questions or comments that you want to make? Or No, I'm just thank you very much for your show. You're doing great things and uh, really enjoying you. And looking oh, forward good. to seeing you in December. Well, great. Yeah, it'll be fun to go to the conference. Memory People is having their first conference in New York, and um, I'm going to attend that. And I can't wait to meet everybody because you feel like you know everybody already. Um, through conversations, um, you know, just in the chat box or Skype or, you know, some of us on the phone, uh, on the radio show and stuff. So it will be really very fun to do. I think I'm going to try to actually coordinate doing a show or two um, from the conference um, so that maybe others uh, who are part of Memory People can get on the air and and talk about what the group has done for them, what they've learned um, about the disease and, um you know, just raising that voice again of what it's like in all of our different positions in terms of dealing with this disease and um, and how a community just makes it so much easier to survive it and really yes, thrive Yes, recently it. I was taught something that I never really understood is sometimes they just don't want to do anything and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. you just sit with them and hold their hand and just go with the flow and it makes a big difference. Oh, it's huge. We're always so busy trying to keep them busy because it makes us feel like we're in control and doing something. And Harry uh, Harry Urban is, is a, a great one to tell us, hey, you know what? I used to like to sit and relax before I got this disease. I still do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a very simple thing to help us shift and look at are they content? You know, are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? Are they content? I mean, we all want to be content and peaceful, and we don't always want to be busy. 
And so I think that's a very, very uh, important lesson that we we all can't uh, hear enough, um, hearing from the voices of those that actually have the disease. So wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Michelle. I appreciate you you calling in. Okay, take care now. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Well, it's always fun to get a few callers in on the on the show. Um, any other comments that you're interested in in making, um, Caitlin? I I definitely want you to give out all of your contact information again, because we uh, we want to make sure that people know how to how to get a hold of you. And um, I also want to get from you when your site is up and running, if you can. Let me know that, and we'll push an article out on the blog. Maybe you can do a an article after you get back from London, kind of talking about how things went and um, your contact information, uh, so that we can push it out and let people know that the the new site is um, automated and up and running. There. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the website will be up and running um, in the next week or so. So I'm, I'm going to say by October. And um, I return from the UK October 3rd, so um, we can definitely do that. And uh, again, my information, the website address is www.memorymats.ca. My email is memorymats1 at gmail.com, and phone number is 647-309-2742. Great. Well, thank you again for being with us. It's uh, it's really been a pleasure, and I'm very excited for you in this coming week. And you'll have to tell uh, tell Mark and all the others. I, I would imagine uh, is Richard Taylor going to be out there? Do you know him? I'm not sure. In London. Well, if you see him, you'll have to tell him hi as as well for me. Uh, I'm a big for sure. big fan of Dr. Richard Taylor. And for those of you that are not familiar with. Richard Taylor, again, you can always Google him or you can uh, go to the alzheimerspeaks.com uh, resource site and go to um, Great Reads and um, you'll see his book there. His book is fabulous, Alzheimer's from the Inside Out. Mm-hmm. He also has some absolutely marvelous videos that are so head on. I mean, they just really hit the nail on the head um, in terms of the disease and how he foresees things changing in terms of removing stigmas and getting people to understand what what it's really like. Um, Richard is also launching, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember the date offhand. I know it's on the blog, though. But if you Google Meeting of the Minds, um, he is going to be launching, I believe it's this month, the first um, webinar, which is just for people with memory impairment. And I want to say it's like the 19th or the 20th. And I think they're doing one for the U.S. and they're doing another one for Canada. And it is something that people have to sign up for. And if for any reason you can't find it, you can always email me at lori, L-O-R-I, at alzheimerspeaks.com. And I'd be more than glad to get that information to you as well. But that that'll be... Um, kind of a first of its kind in the world, having a webinar where people with dementia can actually talk about the needs and all the things that they're doing to kind of move and shake and change our dementia care culture to make things better uh, for all of us out there. So 
It's uh, it's some exciting times, needless to say. Well, I appreciate you being with us, Caitlin. And um, was there anything else that you wanted to wanted to state? No, I just just really wanted to thank you for having me and uh, for all the work you do and thanking everyone for listening today. Yeah, it's been a great show. It's always fun when we get uh, callers that come in. In fact, we have, um, I I actually think it's probably my next guest on the line here. Um, So I will go ahead and um, introduce uh, Dr. Todd. And again, remember uh, for people... uh, you can reach Caitlin at www.memory and then mats, M-A-T-S dot C-A. And her website will be up and running in about a week. So we'll be all, all set and, and ready to go with that. So thank you again so much for your time, and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future here, Caitlin. All right. Okay, bye now. Thank you. Have a good day. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our um, next guest, uh, Dr. Uh, Todd Stivland. And he is an MD and CEO and founder of Bluestone um, Physician Services here in Stillwater, Minnesota. And Dr. Stivland has overseen the growth of Bluestone from just a small home office to the largest provider of care for assisted living patients in Minnesota. Uh, He has been a practicing family physician since 1994, and he has served on the Physician's Advisory Board for Epic Electronic Medical Records and helped oversee the installation of the Epic um, in the Duluth Clinic system and directed numerous startups, including uh, two hospices. He's also served as an advisor and board member for private companies and state and federal health care work groups. So um, I just want to welcome Dr. Stevlin to the show today. How are you doing, Doctor? Very good. Thank you, Mark. Well, good, good. I'm so thrilled that you are able to be with us today. We've had um, quite a time in terms of schedules. I think you and I met probably a year ago. <laughs> Was it that long? I think so. I think so. And um, I was so impressed um, with with you and a conference that you had put on for um, business professionals in the industry. And I just loved your insights um, and the way you you do business. And I just thought I've got to get this man on the air because he's just you're just a wealth of information and you present things in such an easy fashion where people in your audience just kind of have these aha moments one after another. And um, let me tell you, not a lot of physicians have that ability <laughs> to do that with their with their audience that is a, a non-clinical. So again, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. I always like to start out asking um, just from a reference standpoint, um, have you been personally touched, you know, by a family member or friend with uh, with any sort of dementia? Actually, I have not. Um, I haven't had it in my personal life. It was a, a need in my professional life that really drew me drew me into the uh, field. Okay, and that's that's not necessarily unusual. Was there a, a particular time or person? that just made you go, wow, uh, this is what I want to do. This is my focus. 
Well, it, about 10 years ago, I started to see uh, more patients coming into my office who were struggling with uh, dementias and other type of neurological conditions and really uh, taxing our system. And we were ill-equipped to deal with them in the clinic. And there are two people that really, really jump out at me. There was one gentleman, uh, I'll call him Bill, and uh, he had been a patient of mine for a while. And, and one day, one of my patients came back into the back office and said, uh, there's a gentleman in the waiting room I think needs your help. And, and we went out, and he, he was trying to ice fish underneath one of our, our chairs in the lobby. He was trying to dig a hole through the carpet so he could ice fish in the waiting room. And you know, we we, sp- he, we didn't know how he had gotten to the clinic, and didn't have, couldn't find anyone to come get him, and actually spent it about spent about six hours with him in the clinic, um, and had very few ways to support him, and and uh, finally just ended up putting him in the hospital because there was no other resources. And then the other patient that uh, really uh, kind of pushed me to start doing the home visits was a. Uh, a younger man with Alzheimer's, and there's a lot of similarities between some of the younger disabled people and some of the the older Alzheimer's patients, and, and my practice really covers both, but um, this is a young man with Alzheimer's who ended up with cancer, and uh, he would come in and he'd have three or four staff with him, and they would uh, need to pin him down in order to uh, do any type of exam, and it was just, it was brutal and dangerous uh, for the patient, and and the staff and other people in the clinic, and I just felt this was just a completely inhumane way to to treat uh, this young man. And so one day I I said I'm I think I'm going to come out and see him in the home. And they, everyone's jaws kind of dropped and said, I go we can't do medicine here anymore for him. I'm going to see him in the house. And we got there and he needed an exam, um, a full exam. And I said I how are we going to be able to examine him? And they said, well, he likes the bathtub. And I said, well, put him in the bathtub. And so we drew a big bath, and he had a big bathtub, and he floated around there, and we were able for the first time ever to do a full exam on him, which was very important at this stage of his disease. And that was the that was the first home visit I, that I did. Um, and that uh, overlapped into the assisted livings, and then now most of our care is actually done in memory cares. Wow. Talk about going into their world. I mean... That was uh, that was a big step. I I bet people must have thought you were crazy. Just I, I think I thought I was crazy, but uh, <laughs> it worked so well. I was like, wow, this really uh, saved actually saved me a lot of time. I was like, this is a lot easier to drive five minutes than to and to finally get a good exam on, on this young man. Oh, that is, that's a wonderful story. Um, to you know, to really just say you know this is where where he's comfortable, where he's calm. And, you know, I, I can adapt because they can't. And that's such a simple thing for us to say, but it's a very difficult thing for most of us to change. Um, and, no I, matter. Mm-hmm. and I think as, you know, we're learning more about Alzheimer's, we realize how much it affects every area of a patient's life, and the care has to adjust to that. So really looking at a dementia's and organizing around that person's need. I know the Alzheimer's Association is coming out with, you know, dementia being that organizing type of uh, practice, and everything needs to be organized around that diagnosis. It really is a a life-changing and thus needs to be a system-changing type of disease. We can't treat somebody with dementia the same way we maybe treat somebody who has heart failure. 
and um, mm-hmm. we need to to really uh, look at the entire system of how we deliver care sometimes. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. It's um it's just such an important important factor. And um I know for my my own mom is in a nursing home and you know, we used to take her out and go to the doctor visits and you know, when she was in her earlier stages, it was real important for her to get her mammogram and you know, those that was something that she was always proud that she, you know, took care of and then there became a, a time where it wasn't important to her anymore. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have to ask the question, well, if we did find something, would we treat it even? And, um, you know, she got really uncomfortable leaving her home, which was the nursing home. And the anxiety that she would feel was just incredible. And, you know, they tried to give her a kind of a weak warning. Well, that would just bubble up. And it was horrible because she, she thought something was really wrong with her. Um, that was the only reason you went to the doctor was, you know, her process at that point. And so um, when we finally switched over to having an in-home physician, it was like night and day. Um, she was pleasant. She was cooperative. She didn't have all this stress leading up to it. Um, and it was absolutely amazing, um, the difference. So, you know, I commend you for seeing that need and going to where the clients are at. It's just a, it's a, an, a really a gift. And I think that families and facilities really need to look at this seriously in terms of not only um, cost of care, but just in terms of patient-centered care and person-centered care um, and, and how much it can help with them. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, I know that you you have a belief that there are, um, you know, three really positive changes that you've seen kind of in the last 10 years. And I think so many people have, you know, are just kind of getting on this train. And they really don't know the history and how far we've come because we have come a long ways. We've got a long ways to go, in my opinion, but we've come a long ways. So what are what are three positive changes that you've really seen um, you know, come to light in the past 10 years? Well, I think it, it, it starts with a fund of knowledge, and Alzheimer's and dementias are a relatively new field for us. Um, we didn't have a large number of people with these conditions because a lot of people didn't live that long. Um, and so we're we're really just learning so much more about it and in the last you know, five to ten years, our knowledge base from a, a clinical standpoint is really expanding on on the disease. And unfortunately, it hasn't resulted in significant treatments yet, but we have to understand the disease before we can adequately treat it. And so we're really seeing some very interesting science come out, coming out on, you know, where does Alzheimer's start? How does it spread? And then hopefully that will start giving us more knowledge on what causes it and then being able to disrupt that process so it doesn't progress. And we're starting to really see some very interesting science coming out. The second area is education, um, both the families and the healthcare staff. Um, it's kind of, I think, caught a lot of us by surprise, both as in the public and in the, the medical community, where now we've done the a lot of work on educating healthcare staff on what is this disease, how do you treat it, what meds shouldn't you treat it with, um, what kind of signs are 
early symptoms and how do we get on and board and if we can't cure the disease at least how do we manage that that more effectively and then the third real positive thing i see is a just a explosion of uh, different types of communities that are able to uh, provide support and understanding what kind of support is needed so if someone can't be in their home any longer there's a lot more options now for where they can live safely and if they are in their home a lot more options on what we can bring into their home to keep them there which a lot of, for a lot of people is an ideal situation if at all possible um, so those are some you know, definitely some positive uh, things moving forward yeah, and I think uh, you know even the the day programs have varied, and the the different support groups that are out there, not only for the person with dementia but the care partners as well. Um, there's been some pretty significant changes. The whole the whole world of um, technology and the online communications um, and the resources that are coming to light now are are kind of phenomenal. Um, and oh, oh absolutely, the tech. The technology has just made a world of difference, and you know, I'm sitting here at my desk with a smartphone on one corner and an iPad on the other, and a laptop in the middle, and it's amazing <laughs> what I can do. To you know, where it wasn't that long ago, we we had one. I think about 15 years ago, we had one computer for the entire clinic that was in a back office that we'd use once in a while to you know to go in and and onto the internet and pull out reading to. material. Yeah, at least you had to use it back then. Yeah, you know, if, I had to, it was... if we had to. Um, yeah, what I can do, you know, anywhere now off of a smartphone is is so amazing to me that we can get people care very, very quickly and almost instantaneous orders for people who are at high risk, and and that's made a world of difference um, in treating these patients. Now, do you do what they call kind of telemed, where you know you kind of sit and almost Skype and have a conversation, or you are physically going out and and seeing your patients? We do both, and we feel it's um, in order to do the remote visits. We feel it's very important to have a personal relationship. If, if I've never met that person or family before, it's pretty hard for me to to look at an email or a a video chat and um, have a good sense of what's going on. So we're very active in our patients, both from a physical presence and also from a, a technology standpoint. So we try to physically see our patients uh, and be available once a month. And what we find is when we have that kind of relationship, we really um, really alter the course of, of their care. Um, they need about a half amount of, of the hospitalizations. In fact, some uh, data we're getting that uh, those hospitalizations drop 90% when we do the proactive care. And, wow. Um, emergency room massive. visits drop about 70% because we're able to catch things earlier before it's an urgent crisis. Um, so that uh, having that relationship, really understanding that, not only understanding the patient, but understanding what that patient's goals are. And um, in Minnesota, there's been a movement to have what we call a medical home or a health care home. And um, we were actually the first geriatric health care home certified in the country. And the goal of that is that, that where that patient lives and receives their primary care organizes their care plan. And everybody's different, and we really, and unfortunately for a lot of our patients, they're not able to tell us what they would like done. And so that's a, sometimes a complex conversation with the family and maybe other health care providers and spouses 
to say, you know, how do we direct care? What is appropriate? You were talking about, you know, do you still need mammograms? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, those those questions aren't always clear cut. And so we really try hard to say, what is the care plan? What are, what are the goals for this patient? And uh, sometimes I'm surprised. I had uh, one woman whose husband had Alzheimer's, and she was looking to to place her husband in the in the community to live and. You know, we sit down and as doctors, sometimes you think these goals are going to be very, very large and weighty goals. And what was her main goal? She says, I really want a place where I can park close to the door so I can come every day and get in and has a clean sidewalk. And I thought, uh-huh. wow, you know, that's that's what was really important to her. And you know, I have uh, you know, this big, big plan in my head of what a care plan is for a complex disease of labs and medications and doctor visits and specialists and to her, it was I just want to park so I can be near him, and uh-huh. um, so it's really you know, what is important to you in, at this stage in your life, and um, how do we uh, how do we make that happen? It may be getting to a granddaughter's wedding, it may be going to the cabin one last time, it may be you know just being able to be peaceful in one spot and not move. And as, as mm-hmm. you were talking about earlier, how a good, well-run uh, building people get calm and comfortable there and leaving it becomes very difficult. And so we really want to, you know, work with that family on, you know, what are the goals. And so by being a physical presence, we're able to do that much more easily than trying to phone call or Skype and things like that. And by doing that, it gives us the ability then when we're not there to really have almost 24-7 availability, either through a video chat or a lot of times we just do it through, um, we have a what we call our communication portal. It's a secured system that allows us to write orders, talk to families, involve hospice nurses, home care nurses, and we can exchange messages. And it's almost like an ongoing uh, blog inside that patient. So anybody who touches that patient then can post in there and send messages back to the family, messages back to the physician, get orders if need be, make arrangements, and kind of a running log of what's happening with that patient. And not just the doctor visits or just the nursing visits, but pretty much anybody who's coming in contact with that patient. And so we use that a lot, um, and that uh, allows us to really be proactive and and get um, certainly nursing orders signed off, um, concerns addressed by the family quickly, and um, bringing all those pieces. Some of these people may have half a dozen different um, nurses touching them from a hospice or a home care or a care coordinator, the nurse that works at the assisted living, and we want to make sure everyone's on the same page. And that's how we really use that communication um, spot is that everyone can get onto the same page and understand what the other team members are doing so we uh, avoid errors and and avoid confusion. On that, that is so critical. I, I love that you're using a system on that order that that pulls everybody in um, because I, I think that's one of the things where you know families, you know, it, it just gets so hard trying to keep everybody in the loop on what's going on and then with all the HIPAA regulations and and so forth. I have a question for you regarding HIPAA because I know for for many of us we under we understand it, we appreciate it, but it frustrates <laughs> us when we're trying to, you know, um, give care and kind of be in the loop um, because sometimes it, with families, uh, you know, that isn't addressed up front and it gets really complicated. So, do you work with families on? 
you know, trying to communicate and getting them so that they get the right paperwork so that you can communicate with them and, you know, still meet your legal obligations. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, HIPAA is a very large um, uh, health care act that, um, you know, has to do with uh, how do we exchange information. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to protect patients' uh, confidentiality. Now it becomes more difficult with a patient who's not competent to make their own decisions and decide who can see their information. And so it, sometimes those policies bump up against good care. Um, so we first off, we always take take the best care of patients we can, and mm-hmm. you know we're never going to sacrifice somebody's well-being um, to wait around for a piece of paperwork to come in on who we can talk to. Um, so that's uh, you know and that is part of HIPAA. The patient care comes first in an emergency. So that's um, <clears throat> front and foremost is we make sure we take good care of people. Hopefully, people have done some paperwork with power of attorney, and there is a spokesperson um, for that. And either that's the next of kin or somebody who has legal power of attorney, and then we'll deal directly with them. And then they have the right to include people into that um, communication loop. If someone is directly responsible for the patient care as a primary care physician, I can include them in that uh, loop, and that's part of the HIPAA law is that anyone who's directly responsible for the patient's care does have rights and access to their information. Mm-hmm. And if we need to share it to take care of that patient, that is um, that is certainly legal. So if I see a patient and say, boy, I don't know what's going on, I'm going to call up the neurologist and talk and give me advice, I don't need permission from the patient or the power of attorney to call that neurologist and give them information. That's that's perfectly all right if I'm calling another professional. Likewise, if a hospice nurse is on the case, we don't need special permission to talk to each other. We're both part of the care team, and we have every uh, legal uh, right to disclose that information. Well, we typically do a work with the power of attorney, and if there's not one and the patient isn't able to designate someone they would like to be a representative, then we use the next of kin. Occasionally there will be a dispute about that where we need to have some clarification. Very rarely we need to have the courts involved, but luckily that's very rare. And then we um, let that power of attorney create the the, uh, network of people. So maybe four children and... um, then we can get them signed up and communicate as long as the power of attorney gives signs off on that. Yeah, one of the things that I found really helpful, and I don't know if you utilize a system like this or not, but um, with the doctor that that I worked with, uh, you know, we were able to, this was before um, mom was seen in-house, but I would would email them kind of a list of questions or concerns Mm -hmm. that we had to, to his nurse, and then he would always review that. And so it wasn't like me having to say as a caregiver, well, your daughter's concerned about this. You know, it wasn't handled in that fashion. And he, he would just word things in a general fashion, and it was much easier um, to be able to walk out of that meeting um, without, you know, my mom being upset, like I was tattling on her or something I, had changed or my dad. Excellent idea. And that was, it was so much easier for us as a family, and it took us a while to figure that out because um, we were, 
trying to call and that didn't work, but the email and I think actually we started with the facts before we were big into the email back then, but it was so much easier for me as kind of the primary um, caregiver to call family and say, okay, is there anything you want to address? Because we need to get this, you know, on a list. And it and it just it it just allowed things to go smoothly, and it was a, a concise way to communicate. We had a log that we could all track in terms of, you know, if there were changes with the disease. Um, and it just it really worked very, very nicely. So I would recommend that um, to, to anybody um, if, you know, if their doctor is willing to, to utilize something like that. It just really, really helped a lot. I, I think that's that. an excellent uh, suggestion. Yeah, I would highly recommend doing something like that. Yeah, and now do most doctors have kind of a primary nurse that's their their go-to person? I mean, that's kind of what I've found, but, you know, what do I know? I'm just a- absolutely, and, and they that person typically has a whole lot more power than the doctor themselves. So um, if you tell me something, I'll probably forget it. If you tell my nurse, it usually gets to me. So, um, okay. yeah, our assistant, and that may be a medical assistant or an LPN or sometimes an RN, Um you know they're uh, very very involved with that daily schedule, um, <clears throat> and you do want to in- engage that person because they are typically the one who runs the show all day long. And us being uh, us good doctors, just do what they tell them if we're smart. Do what they tell us if we're smart. <laughs> so. Well, it it was really nice because I just I really I, I knew that it was difficult to to get a hold of the doctor, but I really felt that that person was quarterbacking, and I just it made me feel really safe, and comfortable, and confident in the services that we were getting, and it was um, like I said, it, it just it helped so much. I think for all of us in the family to feel uh, feel calmer um, with everything that's going on, because you know caregiving is a pretty hectic role for most of us because it's not the only role you know that we're playing and and most mm-hmm. of us get tossed into it um, as unwilling participants <laughs> and, and again we don't always have control over when something's going to happen and so it's nice to almost feel like you've got a friend you know yep. in that doctor's office um, which is great so I also wanted to ask you about you know, you had told us kind of three positive changes you've seen in the last 10 years, but I would imagine that you see probably some challenges with dementia that still need to be addressed, and I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts on that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, the first challenge, which is a is a national challenge, that if, you know, we uh, are facing an enormous health crisis, where are the resources for this? And Alzheimer's is going to be very near the top of that list for, you know, needs for financing and how do we take care of this group of people, which is expanding much quicker than we can find resources to uh, to care for them. And those resources are, you know, we don't have enough people in healthcare, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners to deal with the volume we have now. And uh, we certainly have a very small number of physicians who are trained in geriatrics or in dementia care. So how do we get resources and providers to uh, handle the onslaught of what's you know, for sure coming down the pike in the next uh, you know, 10 years? You know, The average age of our patients is 87 years old. 
So we're the ba- oldest baby boomers are you know just turning seventy now, and so mm-hmm. we haven't even seen any of the baby boom hitting this um, area, and so mm-hmm. we have a l- very large piece of the population that's going to be coming into the age where we see uh, the dementia start to uh, occur. And we're having difficulty handling a relatively small population right now compared to what we have of people who are in their fifties uh, and sixties that we know are is coming. So that's certainly on a you know nationwide level is a is a very large challenge that I think it's going to take a lot of uh, creative uh, processes to solve. Um, you know, the other challenge is getting. Um, getting the groups of people that do care for them educated on, on what we learn, what medications are there to use. We uh, we tend to over-medicate people who have problems we can't solve easily. And that's uh, one of our big challenges is educating families, educating the nursing staff that we deal with, educating providers, even educating ourselves on what drugs are truly necessary and which ones are causing harm. It's not uncommon for us to get a new patient who's on 10 to sometimes 20 medications. And, um, you know, they all have side effects. They all interact. And, um, you know, very often the things that are not really doing any good, we've just put them on in hopes that they do some good. You know, as as doctors, we want to help. We're not getting kickbacks from the drug companies. We want to help. What we have is we'll try a medication in hopes that will help. Unfortunately, we're much better at giving them than taking them away. And um, so one of the challenges, how do we educate people on which medications aren't necessary? We've had huge campaigns for lowering cholesterol, lowering blood pressure, which I think for the most part are good for the society, but you get to a certain point in life and get other diseases where those medications are actually causing quite a bit more harm than, than help, and now they're interacting and making things worse, and now we have agitation, people can't sleep, people get irritated. Um, and agitated and have difficulties with their caregivers and how do we uh, control that without using so many medications because a lot of the medications we use to control those things um, we know are very dangerous medicines and how do we mm-hmm. limit the, the use and find other other methods to uh, make people comfortable which um, is uh, much tougher than writing a prescription sometimes. Um yeah, so those are certainly some of the challenges, and then um, also how do we uh, you know, in, implement the support systems into you know the homes, the day as you mentioned earlier, the daycare centers, and then the residential care facilities, and keep up with the, the demands that are coming down, and, and and get a group of staff who are trained to and do this uh, do this uh, type of care well. Yeah, I, I want to um, just kind of tie in a couple of things you had talked about the shortage of staff, which is huge, and with early diagnosis coming into play. Um, you know, I just see those numbers as skyrocketing. I mean, it's not uncommon to hear somebody in their 50s um, or early 60s with this disease, and the general public, I think, still believes it's the 80-year-old, you know, that's got the dementia. And um, and, and people even with alcohol-induced dementia, I mean, there's so many different variables um, out there that, I, I, it's, you know, it's going to um, make society just crash if we don't come together as a whole and really uh, learn about this disease and embrace the disease. Um, for myself, I'm, I'm following what they're doing over in uh, the U.K., and, uh, in fact, this week I'll be launching the first um, 
dementia-friendly business and community session, um, trying to get people to understand what it's like. And not that people are going to have all the answers, but to know, you know, basically what dementia is and, you know, how someone with dementia can react and what we can do and how we can do things better to serve them in our business and then to be able to give them resources, to be able to tap in, um, to make change. I think just knowledge is such power, and the conversation has got to kick into high gear on multiple levels um, regarding regarding this disease. Um, now, I don't know if... Um, if you've heard about this, I've only heard it being done over in the UK, and I just, I, you know, I'm always raving about them because I think that they're way ahead of us in a, in a lot of ways regarding their dementia. Actually, we've, we've met with, I've met with several groups of physicians from the UK, and they were coming over here with a lot of the same problems we have, saying, "How are you doing it?" But you know, they, mm-hmm. they certainly have, they certainly have been uh, innovative in in a number of areas, and we've actually worked with a group of physicians from uh, England and from Germany, and kind of pooling sources on how do we tackle some of these issues. Oh, very cool. Well, one of the things that I know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Norms McNamara, but he's a man who um, they thought he had Alzheimer's disease, and then ended up he had Lewy body, and. Mm-hmm. Um, Norms has has just been a huge advocate. He started Dementia Awareness Day, which was just this last Saturday. We celebrated around the world. But um, they are starting to have conferences with the doctors where it's actually round tables where a person with dementia sits at each table and the doctors rotate. Hmm. And they just talk with a person who has dementia. And the feedback that they have gotten is just phenomenal because the doctors are saying, you know, they're just seeing it from a whole different light um, and they're hearing it, you know, from somebody with dementia and they've got um, just wonderful ideas to be able to tap into into how to make change and stuff. I I know I'm kind of getting a similar response. I have a, a webinar series that's free to the public called Dementia Chats where I interview a couple people with dementia and people are just astounded at the answers that they get. Um, because sometimes it's not safe to ask your loved one a question. You want to kind of go outside the box mm-hmm. and, um, you know, preserve their respect and their dignity on some things and just get a feel for what it's like. And I think what's coming out is that this disease is so different in each individual, you know, in, in, in how how it manifests, manifests itself. And, um, you know, it really kind of ties into... Um, that whole that whole person it's it's it, yeah it follows um i guess a certain prevalence in terms of you know how it's going to formulate over time, but it really does ebb and flow through these stages um and I'm sure that you see that too um where people are at you know some days they have a good day and they can't do uh and they can do this and other days they have a really bad day and they and they can't do this at all and then they bounce back again. Um, and so it's kind of an interesting um, process, all the different new levels that are that are coming to be. Um, even with the radio show, you know, I interview professionals like yourself. I interview people with dementia. I interview personal caregivers. And, and the whole focus of the show is to have a conversation and hear everyone's opinion and, you know, find out what their perspective is from the angle they're looking at it because, it, you know, it takes all of us to kind of figure this out, um, what works and, and what doesn't. So um, 
it was just kind of an interesting thing, though, when they when they actually had people with dementia kind of being the, the main spokespersons at the table and then just rotated the doctor yeah. through. I didn't yeah, that, that's a very interesting uh, um, process. I think it's excellent. And you, know, you were talking about you know, how do you ask questions, and sometimes um, you know, I'll do <coughs> mental status testing with the family there, and they're, they're amazed at the how much a patient has covered that up. And they'll be like, mm-hmm. oh, she's fine. She remembers everything about the farm. She knows, you know, anything that was more than 30 years ago, she can just rattle off. But then uh, we'll start doing questions and realize that she doesn't know where she is, doesn't know what any of the care staff's names are, thinks Eisenhower is the president. And so um, it, uh, it can be to understand where people are coming from. And brain activity isn't necessarily affected globally in maybe just one area. And you may... Many people will do a very good job of covering up that disability and don't want people to know that, and particularly close family members will go to great lengths to protect their family members from knowing really what's going on, and it's very scary. If anyone finds out what I'm thinking, I'll have to move out of my home. I'll have to move into the home. I'll, I'll lose these things. And um, so it's, uh, yeah, being able to talk to someone and ask a series of questions and really get an idea of, of how their brain is functioning. The other thing you mentioned, which I, I brought into the conversation when we started, is younger people. And although mm-hmm. we do see Alzheimer's down into people in their 50s, right now we're seeing a, another big group of people with traumatic brain injury, um, particularly from uh, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, but also from you know other types of trauma. And um, Part of my first practice was working with people with autism and traumatic brain injuries who were younger, and most of them in their teens and 20s. And um, that brings in a whole new group of of, uh, different uh, considerations when you're dealing with that younger group. And there are, you know, just millions of people in the country right now with traumatic brain injuries at all ages. They really require a lot of special treatment, and depending on what area of the brain was injured, can have very, very different uh, profiles and require different uh, types of care. Oh, definitely. That's that's a, a great point um, to bring out because people, uh, you know, they don't understand. I mean, none of us really understand what triggers this disease per se. I mean, if if any of us really had the the golden egg on that one, we'd be doing really good, but. Um, you know, there's so many different variables that can come into play um, that can can start this um, this whole process with dementia. I mean, I'm shocked at how many people don't even understand that not eating properly or drinking enough water, you know, can cause some problems <laughs> with memory, and and people are shocked, you know, no, absolutely. get dehydrated. Um, so there's there's some things that you know can be corrected with dementia. Um, or it could be contraindications with, um, you know, medications not mixing well. I mean, there's a zillion different things, and that's where your expertise is so important because we as lay people, I mean, you know, we just don't have a clue. And so you're, you're probing questions, getting us to think about, you know, what happened before this episode is is so important. Um, and I think as a world we have to really start kind of tracking that and looking at things in reverse because a lot of times um, behaviors and stuff um, or what I like to call them is reactions maybe that we don't care for um, can be controlled um, if we work in reverse. 
and um, and figure out what those trigger points are. But most of us don't look for the triggers. It's it's you know we're kind of used to just saying we don't like that. Stop it. <laughs> you know, go to time out or or whatever it is. And we really have to be the one to manipulate things um, in a different fashion to draw out things in a different light. And um, and a lot of times, you know, Judy Judy Berry with Lakeview Ranch does a wonderful job here locally um, in terms of getting rid of those behaviors because they what they call shadow somebody to see what the triggers are. Or I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Dr. Al Powers, you know, with his his book, um, you know, Dementia Beyond. I think it's called Dementia Beyond Drugs. And, um, you know, saying, you know, we don't need as many, like you had just said, um, as we think we do. Uh, we actually uh, did a small study with Hershey's Kisses versus um, a, a Valium-type drug called Ativan and found that the, kiss, the Hershey's Kisses were more effective than Valium. Isn't that something? Well, chocolate does it for me. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, our, our, none of our staff argued with the results. <laughs> well, that's... Um, you know, but but it almost goes back to, and again, I don't know if there's research on all of this stuff or not, but one of our callers was talking kind of about the emotional memories that things can trigger. And I think mm-hmm. chocolate, sweets, you know, um, scents, all of those things can come into play and, and just bring us back to a little different time in our life um, where it calms us down and, you know, offers us kind of that, that solace. And um, that's an interesting point you bring up. We we do find, and I'll I'll talk to the families and staff about this. Is you need to find out where your um, loved one is living. What what time are they living? They may be a teenager. They may be a you know a young mother. They may be uh, you know a soldier in the war. And if if in your head you're in World War II, and a bunch of pans drop in the kitchen next to your room, that may trigger a fair amount of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Um, it is important to those, you hit on a very uh, important uh, topic, those memory triggers are very much intact and often much stronger than someone who has the, the conscious ability to suppress them. And um, so it, uh, we, we do a lot of uh, role playing and um, playing along with, you know, if you're a, a young mother on the farm and you have a new baby, you know, we do, you know, baby dolls. Um, and uh, that often is very soothing to people to be. I, 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 my theory is, um, and this is my own personal opinion, is people pick a, often pick a time that they're most comfortable in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, Why wouldn't bring you? them the most re- relief. And, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. just, just leave them there. They want to be with their young family on the farm. That's wonderful. Let them be there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think that that's a, a great thing when you talk about, you know, those emotional triggers. And, and they can be um, positive or negative, and I think people have to remember that as well. Mm-hmm. There was a time where my mother, um, this was so powerful to me, and it was it still upsets me to this day, and I'll, I'll never know the answer, but my dad had passed, my mom was in the nursing home, and my mom um, fell in love. And I'll never forget coming to see her one day, and she's sitting on the bench outside the nursing home on a beautiful afternoon, and she is just bedazzled. I mean, she's she just looks um, so happy and so content. She's just beaming like a 13-year-old in love. And 
I, I went and I sat with her and I said, what's up? And she said, oh, I met a man. And I said, you did? I said, what's his name? And she, she thought for a little while and she looked at me and she said, oh, Lori, I have Alzheimer's. I don't remember his name. So I said, well, what does he look like? And she described him to me and he was tall and he had salt and pepper hair and he had these beautiful kind eyes and they would sit every night on the bench and and go for a walk and then they would watch the sunset together. And it was just, it was so nice to see her so comfortable. And so, of course, every day I would come and I would visit and I was looking for the man. Who's the man? And I couldn't, I couldn't find him. And so uh, one day I finally, it was uh, after about two weeks, I thought, well, I'm going to ask the nurse because now I'm wondering, is it a visitor who doesn't realize my mom has dementia? I was worried about is she vulnerable at this case, you know, and, and sure. stuff. And the nurse looked to me square in the eye and she said, sit down. And I said, okay. And she said, it's not a man. It's it's Mary Beth or, you know, whatever the woman's name was. Mm-hmm. And she said, how do you feel about that? And I just looked at her and I said, my, I, I haven't seen my mom this happy in years. And, you know, I don't think there's anything, you know, wrong in terms of what they're doing. I don't think she's being abused. I, I think it's really a pretty innocent relationship. And um, I said, I'm okay with it. You know, she is just so happy. And my mom, this relationship went on for a while. And the woman, uh, you know, had a masculine build. I mean, if you didn't know, you would have thought she was a man. And a, a couple weeks later, I came to visit my mom. And there she is sitting on the bench in front of the nursing home. And her arms are crossed, and her face is beat red, and her eyes are on fire. And she's been crying, and she's just totally upset. And, you know, I asked her what was wrong, and she didn't want to talk about it. And finally, she she uh, she told me, she said, um, we broke up. You know, because I said, well, where's your friend? I don't see him anymore. And then I said, well, what happened? I don't want to talk about it. And she was just really just devastated. And what I came to find out, um, or what I came to believe, is that someone told my mom that the love of her life was a woman. Mm. And for my mom, you know, brought up Catholic, and in her late 70s at that time, early 80s, it was probably late 70s, um, that was not appropriate for how she was brought up. And so I believe that triggered her to break this relationship. But my mom held that pain and that anger for a good two months. She couldn't hold on to much of anything else in terms of a thought, but it was such a strong emotional tie that that she remembered. And I think she was embarrassed and she was devastated. And to this day, I would love to know who told her, you know, because I don't believe anyone had the right to take away my mom's happiness. Because they were uncomfortable with it. Yeah, and, and that's what I talk about in role playing is you know find out where they're at and and support that because it often results in you know much higher level of happiness. Oh, you know, and it was just it was so innocent. It was really quite beautiful. Um, you know, another time I had a 
I had a person come in. Uh, I was I was speaking at the nursing home, and, and a woman raised her hand, and she said, um, she said, I just have to thank you for your mom. And I said, thank me. And she said, yes. She says, um, my husband is in love with her. And she was sitting with her two kids. And she says, we have dinner with them just about every night. And she has made my husband so happy. This transition has been really good for him. And I know your your mom has enjoyed it as well. And if they would get separated, they would both look anxiously for one another. And then they would just kind of calm down once they were sitting together. And again, very innocent relationship, but um, very powerful effect. And I just thought how gracious of this woman to understand that her husband is in a different place in time and she didn't take it personally. You know, it wasn't about that at all. And um, just a beautiful, beautiful story. But again, those emotional memories for each of them were were very, very powerful. And I, I think we, again, definitely have to take those into consideration. We also, as caregivers and care partners, have to know where we stand with things. And sometimes we have to back out of our emotional pain or discomfort because it's not about us. It's about them. And um, which goes back to my memory chip tool, which is are they safe, are they happy, are they pain-free? Because it's not about us. Um, And we don't think it's about us. But when we've got this big list of all the things we have to do, we make it about us. And we don't even know we're doing that. And And I can say that because I was the queen of that. <laughs> you know? And I really I really didn't think that I was making it about me, but I was totally um making it, you know, my life and about me and and how it was gonna get done and, you know, trying to perfect this and, you know, now my saying is I don't go for perfection, I go for progress. You know, I've, I've let the perfection piece go and trying to control things and just, you know, move ahead doing the best I can every day with what it is that I have. And by releasing that control and that need for perfection, I have found that I have gained so much more control and calmness in my life. I mean, it was just a gift I didn't I didn't see coming um, and a pretty, pretty neat thing. Um I also wanted to ask you, you had mentioned the shortage of staff. Um, how are we? How do you think we're going to deal with this? I mean, to me, this is really scary. I wish I had an answer for that. I think um, what we need to do <clears throat> really is kind of rethink some of the things that um, we hold very tightly and who can do what type of jobs. It takes a long time to uh, train a physician. And are the physicians doing simply what physicians need to do? Um, and then the other uh, pieces down the road. So in our company, we work very hard to have physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and support staff you know, all working together and make sure the work lands at an appropriate um, level to maximize um, people who have expertise in this area. And I think we need to do that at a broader scale. Unfortunately, we've put in a lot of policies to result in huge amounts of paperwork. So right now, the average physician is spending 50% of their time on paperwork. We could actually double the physician force by just getting rid of the paperwork. Now, we certainly need some paperwork, 
but um, <clears throat> it's probably gone in my career. It's probably gone up uh, tenfold from what it was 20 years ago. Um, and that goes down to all levels. You know, if you walk into a lot of these buildings, you'll see the entire nursing staff in the office filling out forms and putting things into the computer. And I think you know, being able to use technology to our advantage and streamline it instead of having people tied to it is a good good starting spot. And then hopefully we can recruit people to this type of work, which I think we can. Um, I think there's a lot of rewards to it. Um, so that would be the next goal is to getting people interested in this type of uh, career. Yeah, and I think part of it is, you know, we have to as a society, I think, give people the due respect to work in this field. Um, you know, we were talking earlier on the show about the line staff don't always, in my opinion, get the respect they deserve. I mean, they're many times the ones really creating the world in which the person lives. And, you know, they might not be um, degreed, um, but they, you know, they are um, kind of filling in for family and friends. We have, we try to identify what we call the true decision maker, who's really making decisions for that person. And in a lot of our patients, that's a 20-year-old aide who mm-hmm. is the one who's actually probably making the most decisions on what happens on a day-to-day basis. And they may not seem like major decisions, but how those smaller decisions are um, are made often have you know, very big effects. Um, who decides to call the ambulance? Who decides to give a medication that's ordered as needed? Who decides, you know, where someone sits? Who, what kind of support they need to prevent a fall? Um, that they get to the the restroom on time to prevent them from, you know, having a bladder infection or constipation. Um, all of those things, uh, you know, a lot of times fall under this. Uh, the aid staff, and um, mm-hmm. they're, they're integral to what we do, and you know, nothing really happens without them doing a good job. Yeah, definitely. Now, one of our, our callers earlier was talking about you know a person who wants to go home. Um, what are your thoughts if someone is saying, I want to go home, I want to go home? Do you think they really <clears throat> want to go home, or do you think it's, it's deeper than that? Uh, yeah, um, it's very common, and I think we have to look at it two ways. And um, I, I've had patients fall on both sides of the fence. I've had one woman we actually just successfully moved home um, and brought in home care and um, and basically and 24-hour aids. And we did it for actually about the same cost as what the assisted living was with a variety of resources. Um, and she was able to do private pay for the assisted living or the home care, which isn't necessarily the norm. But she did have some resources to do that. And she is much calmer and much happier in her own home than she was in the assisted living, and she was very aware of what her home was, could describe it in detail, and and, um, such a beautiful home overlooking the river. And she was very calm to have that view and to be in her own home, and that was helpful for her. She'd lived in it most of her life. Typically, people say, I want to go home, I want to go home. It's almost a a mantra, and you'll hear them Mm -hmm. say it over and over and over again. And... However, if they do go to their home, they don't even recognize it. Um, it's, they're not really asking to go home. And for whatever reason, that phrase has gotten stuck in their head. I think they do want to have a, a secure place to be. Um, however, if, you, if they do go back to their home, they don't. that's not it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's disconcerting. And I, I feel sorry for people whose family members 
you have something that's kind of hard to hear and they say it over and over and over again. Um, I've heard all kinds of different phrases kind of in that mantra. And for some reason, that little loop in the brain gets stuck and it just keeps playing over and over and over again like a old scratched record. And that's um, had all kind of, like I said, I've had all kinds of things being said. Some are positive and lovely. Some of them are are very rude and very difficult for family members to hear. And I think I want to go home is a common one and produces a lot of guilt. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, what I what I tell my family members is, yeah, it's almost like dealing with a, a young toddler. They may get, I want a cookie, I want a cookie, I want a cookie. It doesn't mean you give them a cookie each time they ask. Or they may say, why, 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 all day long. And it's harder when it's your parent than it's a toddler. But our job is to provide a safe environment. And if the home is not a safe environment, then we have an obligation to make sure someone is in a safe environment. And even if they don't see the wisdom in that at this point in their life, we have that responsibility. Just like a two-year-old, we wouldn't just say, well, we'll just let you eat only cookies. We have responsibilities as a parent to that two-year-old to make sure they're safe and get good nutrition and don't don't make their own decisions on things when they when their health is at risk. And we have that same responsibility to our parents or their loved ones if, if they don't have the ability to make the right decision, even though it's hard, even though we may feel very guilty. If they're not safe in their own home, then it's our obligation to put them somewhere where they are safe. And um, that may not be popular and it may be hard to hear, but we just have to tune that out and say that's just part of the disease. It's not a pleasant part of the disease, but it doesn't mean I change what we're doing. And you mm-hmm. probably won't change it. And medications don't change it, and trying to coax them out of it doesn't change it. Just ignore it. There's okay. nothing more you can do. Just like the two-year-old who says why over and over again, you're not going to explain your way out of it. Um, mm-hmm. But it probably won't stop. Good, Good advice. Now, we've only got about 10 minutes left. I can't believe the time just goes so fast. Can you give us um, some advice that you would give family when they're when they're thinking of placing a member of, you know, or a loved one into memory care? Do you have any advice for that? Sure. Um, I think number one is start early. Um, so you, you don't want to be in the hospital and say you have 24 hours to find some place because we're discharging her tomorrow. Um, so if you know that this is going to come up, I think people are like, oh, well, well, it's somehow you're abandoning your family member by starting the search early. If you don't need it, you don't need it, but you should be prepared. So if you're dealing with a loved one who's deteriorating and may not be able to stay at home even in the next several years, um, I would start the search and look locally to find where the best places are. The best places may often have a waiting list. Um, there's a lot of financial considerations to it. If um, people uh, can afford it at, with cash, they have more options. If they're going to use one of the elderly waiver programs, the options get more limited. Um, so there's a lot to do with the finances of it. So I would, again, recommend people start early. Um, there's lots of good programs around. I think um, I, I wouldn't say one building is necessarily better than another. It's a It's a fit. I think if I could give people advice on, you know, how do you judge whether someplace is good or not, if I could ask one mm-hmm. question and make that determination, it'd be how long has your staff been here? And um, if that's a staff that's turning over every three months, you probably don't have a real well-run well organization. 
if those staff have been there for a while, um, it's probably well run and they're doing a good job and they're proud of what they do. So, you know, I've seen great large buildings, I've seen great small buildings, I've seen bad small buildings and bad large buildings, but that's probably the one feature that uh, tends to carry carry through is that uh, they're able to bring in the staff and, and keep them um, mm-hmm. without a lot of turnover. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate the time that you've spent with us today so much. Um, it's just been been wonderful to have you um, part of the show. How do people get a hold of you, Dr. Stenson? Um, what's the best contact information for them? Yeah, our our, uh, our website is um, bluestonemd.com, and there's um, phone numbers on that, and our office number is uh, 651-342-1039. Okay, wonderful. And we, uh, mm-hmm. and we contract with the assisted livings themselves, so we don't, unfortunately, have the, the staffing to go uh, everywhere where we'd like to go, so um, we don't uh, do individual homes um, outside of our network right now, and we don't go to uh, assisted livings that are outside of our current network on a per-patient basis. So unfortunately, we we just don't have the staffing to be able to cover all the need. So we only uh, we contract with this assisted living and then bring our program in. So if people call and say, can you see my mom who in her house over here, unfortunately, we don't have the ability to do that with our current staffing. Are you primarily in the seven-county area in the metropolitan area in Minnesota here? We, or? Yeah, we're actually a little bit larger than that. We're in 140, 40-some assisted living throughout the Twin Cities. We go north up to North Branch and Cambridge, out to Elk River, St. Michael, um, down through uh, the western suburbs and um, I think Apple Valley, uh, Prior Lake in the south. And We don't go into Wisconsin, so up to the Wisconsin border on the east. Okay. Well, great. Anything else that you'd like our listeners to know? I think we covered a lot of ground, so thanks for the opportunity. Oh, well, thank you so much. And, again, if you have any any questions, um, please uh, feel free to get a hold of uh, Dr. Todd or one of his staff at um, www.bluestonemd.com. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show. I want to thank our audience and everyone for calling in and our comments in the chat box. It's always just a pleasure um, to interact with everybody and to learn and grow and shake and move our dementia care culture together. I, I feel it's just an honor to um, play the role that I'm, I'm playing as, as host with this. I, I learn something new every single day. Um, regarding our dementia care culture. Again, I want to remind people that uh, the 21st of September is World Alzheimer's and Dementia Day. So you'll be seeing probably lots of articles and we'll most likely be doing a show. I'm still trying to firm up some people around the world. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to pull it off or not, but if not, we'll, we'll just have a, a general conversation um, that day and, um, again, celebrate our, our knowledge and um what is working. If you uh, enjoyed the show, I would appreciate it if you can like us on Facebook and if you've got a Twitter account, if you can help push us out. We do have an international audience, um, but again, we would like to grow. We just think that there's a wealth of information and we want people to know not only about the 
Alzheimer Speaks radio show, but our international collaborative um, resource website for dementia, which is at www.alzheimersspeaks.com. And I look forward to working with you all in the future. Thanks so much, and have a blessed day. Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.